Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. So, what we have been doing, just to remind ourselves, is that we have been looking at the unfolding of ideas, of Kabbalistic ideas, as they are revealed in the world as part of the unfolding uh, spiritual destiny of the Jewish people, really, to bring humanity overall to a higher level of consciousness about the divine and its relationship with the world and its relationship to humanity. And I'm doing that in this course through the anchoring, if you like, on compositions that became famous works of a Kabbalistic nature in Jewish history and literature. We're really in this course only focusing on the most famous of the most famous. We can't do them all. Um, there would be, off the top of my head, um, maybe 40 or 50 major works in Kabbalah that have in some way contributed and shifted the discourse. So we're looking at the biggies to get a groundwork and maybe later on in another course we'll look at some of the uh, significant yet perhaps not as famous works. So the, in the first talk we talked about the shift in Kabbalistic consciousness that happens as a result of the synthesis between the Sefi Yitzira and the Sefer HaBahir and how they became kind of synthesized in the next major development of Kabbalistic thought which is Sha'are Ora and by the time you get to Jikatila as we looked at you've got a full frame set network of, of Sfirot we know their names uh, we know their symbolic parallels we're starting to understand that the attributes of the divine that are alluded to in Tanakh and in Midrash are in fact the ten attributes of divine interaction with the world. Uh, Jikatila's system goes from bottom to up, but we now know what those ten are, and we know their configuration. And then last week, we looked at how that then moves quantum leap forward uh, with the Zohar, which applies that symbolic structure to the entire Tanakh. And one of the things that I... Uh, <coughs> And of course, the Zohar bringing in a great many other perspectives and ideas about the nature of the divine relationship with the world. And one of the things I didn't mention last week, there's always something I don't mention and I mean to, and, it, and interestingly enough, it acts as kind of like the hook for what I'm moving on today. One of the things that the Zohar also does is it gives an understanding of the uh, cosmic effect of practice. Not practice as in, I'm going to try doing this ten times and maybe I'll get it right. Practice as in praxis, as in applied um, life. The performance of commandments, specifically the commandments of the Torah, are now conduits of cosmic change. And the Zohar is very big on this fact that what you do has an effect in the higher worlds. Now that we're on the other side of the Zohar, we do have an understanding of these four domains of existence. We have a much deeper and richer understanding of the dynamics of the Sfirot as modes of representation of God and of God's divine energy in the world. 
But I've got to tell you that um, for a long time, people, when I say a long time, a couple of centuries, these Zoharic manuscripts, and as I said, the Zohar is written in Aramaic. If you don't understand the symbolic structure of it, it's still incredibly poetic and incredibly beautiful. But understand what's going on underneath the text, how it's talking about the unity of the divine and the relationship that human beings have as agents of that unity. And when we talk about the unity of the divine, what we re the divine itself is unified. But what we're really talking about is the unity of the divine, the concept of reality of the divine in this world. So long as humans live in a less than perfect world by their own making, God is less revealed. And in fact, God itself, in a sense, is fractured. There is a fracturing that has happened in reality. We looked at the Sefer Ditzniuta, this part of the Zohar that really talks about uh, the idea that somehow the, the creation, the cosmos, is a result of processes of creation, destruction and renewal. And the Zohar is alluding to that. But for a couple of centuries, the Zoharic manuscripts are circulating. People are reading them. They're getting blown away. They can see snippets of something incredibly profound. But no one really has had made a handle on what, on how everything in the Zohar is explained. Its themes, its characters. What do they really mean? This is like one long poem. It's amazing. And I can see that there's a relationship with the Sfirot when it talks about, you know, Yaakov uniting with Rachel. I know that that's symbolizing Tiferet uniting with Malchut and so on. And I can see that, but what, what, what ideas are emerging from here? How, how is this actually affecting my understanding of what God actually is and how God creates the world? There's a number, remember that the time of the Zohar is also a time of growing developments in Jewish philosophy as well. And medieval Jewish philosophy is also grappling to some extent on a much more rational basis with answers to these questions. And the mystics are studying the Zohar, but it's all very esoteric. The Zohar is not a public exercise at this point. It's around here that we start getting those warnings about people shouldn't learn Kabbalah till they're 40 and all the other things that emerged in the late Middle Ages as the Zohar is a blast, not to mention the fact that some people are saying, oh, I'm not entirely sure about the Zohar. But the overwhelming trend within the Jewish world was to accept the Zohar as canonical, as a composition of Reb Shimon Bar Yochai, and it's a Tanaitic text. It's equal in authority with the Mishnah, with the Mishnah. But this is the esoteric law. This is the Torah Hasod. But no one really, really had cracked it. And certainly not a book like Sifra Ditzniuta, which we looked at a bit last week, which I don't know if anyone went and had a look at Sifra Ditzniuta, but it's one of the hardest texts to understand ever written by humans. Plus the Idra Zute in the Idra Rabba and, and, and all of the, I mean, it's interesting because we can't not talk about the fact that last... <laughs> Last Wednesday night, I spoke about the Idra Zuta in the Zohar, and I spoke about its relationship to Lagba Omer, 
And I even made mention of the fact that at the, okay, in the occasion of the original Idrazuta, where Rabbi Shimon's soul itself was istalic, that he in fact took several of the companions with him. And I mentioned that last Wednesday night, and it uh, goes without saying that the events that happened in Meron the following evening uh, shake us to the core. Certainly anyone that's been to Meron, and we have no words to begin to try to explain that tragedy, certainly not in cosmic terms. It is beyond our ability to understand that. The only way we can understand that is that they need to do an investigation and make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen again. That is the best that we can try to aim for in this world and whatever answers we find in the next world, that's where they'll be for the time being. That situation about the Zohar changes deeply and significantly as we move into the 16th century. One of the major reasons for that is, of course, I don't need to tell you, what's one of the major reasons why things changed in the middle of the 16th century? Shabbat No, he's not till the 17th century. As we move into this, in, as we move into the 16th century, huh? I beg your pardon. Uh, no, Chmelnitsky is not also till the 17th century, but this gentleman has said it. The expulsion of Spanish Jewry. The whole of the Jewish communities of the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, which had been basically the bastion of the Jewish world for centuries. I mean, the, 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 the glory of the, of the community of Spain is a 700-year community. And it came crashing down overnight. Well, not overnight, it was a 100-year train wreck in slow motion, but it did, it did come crashing down at the end of the 16th century, at the end of the 15th century, and tens of thousands of Jews, were, and maybe even hundreds of thousands by some accounts, were pouring out of Spain and changing the nature of the Jewish world everywhere. <clears throat> so that's one major thing, but it's not, just, it's not just that the Zohar and all of the great literary treasures of Spanish Jewry were suddenly coming out, this event demanded a cosmic explanation. It precipitated some very, very intense thoughts on the one hand about Geula, about redemption, about what exactly is going on in this exile. And some people are thinking that the time is right to begin that process actively. So on the one hand, thoughts about redemption, but on the other hand, thoughts about Kabbalah, about Jewish mystical thinking, about Torah Hasod, the secrets of Torah, and what they can tell us about this time, and what they can tell us about this new world that we're apparently moving into, and where are we at in the unfolding of the spiritual cosmos. If the Zohar has told us that there's a relationship between events on earth and events up high, then what exactly is happening up high that has a relationship with these events? Can we change it? Can we, can we do something about it? Can we understand it? How close are we? 
And still, people are reading the Zohar as, the, as, as, as we move into the 16th century, and the Zohar is about to become printed. I mean, so now, we're at a completely different framework. Every, many, many people are now recognizing that the Zohar is the primary text of Kabbalah. It's huge, it's there. But no one really still understands what it's trying to tell us. Now, tonight... In the time that's left for me after that introduction, I want to talk tonight about two books. And if I can take us from the first book I'm going to talk about to the second book I'm talking about in the time allowed to us, I think that that will be an achievement. Whether I achieve it well or not, you'll tell me. But I'm only going to talk about two, maybe a third book, but we'll see. The primary thing is I want to talk about two books. These two books, if you understand how you get from one, this first book to the second book, then you will start to understand something of the dynamic nature of exactly what happened to Jewish thought in the 16th century and certainly what happened to Jewish mysticism. The two books are these. I always bring the books I'm talking about. That's the nature of this course. They're both red in every sense of the word. The first book I want to talk about, and I want to give over an understanding of just how significant this book is, is a book written by a person who we're not entirely sure where he was born. I'm not 100% sure where he was born, but he certainly grew up and lived almost his entire life from a young age in the newly kind of a new a, a town that was undergoing something of a renaissance in the north of Israel in the Galilee the town of Safed the town of Tzfat a lot of people don't realize that the spiritual revolution that happened in Tzfat was commensurate with the fact that Tzfat had become a kind of a center in the Ottoman Empire's new economic development zone that encompassed the Galil and therefore were inviting Jews to go and settle there. Not simply that they could come to Israel and to the Ottoman Empire. There were certain places where they wanted Jews to go and there were certain places where they made it very difficult for Jews to live. What's the one city, that one city where people would have liked to have lived but the Ottomans made it difficult, of course, was Jerusalem. So people who went to the land of Israel went to the north generally, which was in this new economic development zone. So it's no surprise that Jews are starting to swell. And with that, you then get suddenly these various waves that come to the north of Israel once several people are already established there, which is why watching the growth of the north of Israel in spiritual terms in the certainly the first half of the 16th century, the first half of the 1500s, is a fascinating exercise. A fascinating exercise, by the way, that touches upon something we're going to be doing next week. What are we going to be doing next week as Kabbalists or as anybody? Not next week, the week after. <laughs> On Shavuot. So the whole concept of a Tikkun Leil Shavuot, yes? That concept starts really in the 16th century and is connected also with the migration of many great rabbis and mystics and so on who came to the land of Israel. It's a separate subject. And the predominant location was 
Sfat in the north, which was thriving spiritually and economically. And it wasn't just mystics who came, some of the great legal minds. So you get people like Yosef Karo, and you have uh, people like uh, Yaakov Berab, and huge, great figures in Jewish learning who are turning up in Sfat. And of course, you also have mystics. But our author tonight is someone who actually grew up and lived most of their life in Tzfat, and his name is Rabbi Moshe Cordovero. And of course, where does his family come from? Cordova. Cordova. Although, although it has the name Cordovero, and of course Cordova is a Spanish town, it's understood his family was actually Portuguese. But he grew up in Tzfat, and he was, of course, an Ilui meaning a prodigy. And of course, by the time he's 20, he's already counted. I mean, <laughs> I want you to understand what it would be like. People think of the Ramak. We call him the Ramak, Rab Moshe Cordovero. Rabbi Moses or Moshe Cordovero. And he's often known by the acronym the Ramak. Either Q or K, whatever you want. And people think of the Ramak as this massive Kabbalist because of the book I'm about to talk about. But in fact, they often don't realize that his teacher in Halakha was Yosef Karu. Who, after having written the entire commentary, Bet Yosef, on the tour, decided to go to Tzfat and turn that into a document that we now know as the Shulchan Aruch. So imagine your teacher is the author of the Shulchan Aruch. Your direct teacher. But you get to the age of 20, not but, and you get to the age of 20, they're already saying to you, you're at Rosh Yeshiva level, you need to see, we need to set you up with the, with, with the Yeshiva, and they do eventually, they do, they set him up in the Academy of the Portuguese Jews in, in Tzfat, but from the age of 20, he had this tremendous yearning to study Kabbalah and to study Jewish mysticism and Jewish mystical texts. And he read, being in Tzfat, not a bad location to be in the 16th century, especially since they're just starting, the printing presses in Europe and elsewhere are just starting to pump out, uh, and also in the Ottoman Empire, to pump out Kabbalistic books. You're in the right location, a lot of rabbis, a lot of spiritual dudes around you. So the first thing he did was he read everything. That was his first exercise. Everything he could get his hands on in the 16th century. And not just read it, but contemplate it. And he basically completed that task by around the age of 27. And he had not only completed that task, but he had also compiled a phenomenal work explaining philosophically and in some cases even rationally the whole of the metaphysical and cosmological system of Kabbalah. That could be read by someone who was rationally inclined but open to ideas that came in from, I mean, ideas about emanation, ideas about infinity, ideas about the soul, 
If you're open to those ideas, he'll tell you everything. That book is called Pardes Rimonim, which as some of you would recognize as a phrase from Shira Shirim. It means, of course, Pardes Rimonim means an orchard of pomegranates. And in an orchard of pomegranates, the Ramak, first of all, and I'm going to talk about Paris Rimonim for five minutes, and then I'm going to take us on to the next book, and we're going to understand the transition between this book and this book. The first thing the Ramak has to do in the 16th century. I, I, I know that it's astonishing what I'm telling you. I can look around, I can see people astonished. But a lot of people don't realize that these... In, in, these spiritual realizations, these spiritual shifts are not that old in Jewish thought. They're happening as we are driving forward. Some of them are happening now. Some of them are happening now. But we're going back to the 16th century. So one of the first things that there are marked as the first great systematizer of Kabbalistic thought, because that's what Pardes Rimonim is. It's a system. The first great systematizer of Kabbalistic thought who's going to take everything, and by the way, he's really, really, really basing himself, he's read everything, but he's really basing himself on only two or three major texts that he is trying to explain because he knows that these are the two or three major texts that you're going to encounter. And they are, of course... In other words, he's taken my list and he's reduced it even further. What are the two? If you're running around in the 15th, 16th centuries and you can only get your hands on two Kabbalistic books, what are they going to be? Sefi Yetzirah and the Zohar. And he's also going to put in there for you a bit of Abulafia because he knows that you'll go poking around in there as well. The Ramak is giving you the summation of everything that he's done. He's putting it in a system. But the first thing he's got to do is he's got to solve certain debates and conundrums that have been attenuated Kabbalistic thought in the last few centuries. And he needs to make determinations on them. And the first is, at the end of the day, When we talk about God, when religion talks about God, when Jewish spirituality talks about God, we're talking about Ein Sof. We're talking about the infinite. We're not talking about any level of God. We're talking about God far beyond our ability to comprehend. It's infinite. Keter, the Sphira of Keter. Yes, everybody remember? Keter, Chokhmah, Binah, Dad, Chesed, Gvura, Tiferet, Netzach, Hod, Yesod, Malchut. Keter is not God. Keter is not Ein Sof. The Sfirot 
are not essential attributes of God. They are instrumental. They are instrumentalities. The Sfirot are instrumental. They are simply tools, if you like, by which God creates and by which God continues to reveal in creation. And his name of his first, one of his first chapters is Keter is not Ein Sof. It's not the case that Keter is God and the other Sfirot emanate from him. Keter is one of the Sfirot. And that the Sfirot are not essential, they're instrumental. These are important points that are discussions in medieval Kabbalah. The Rabak is going to come and say, no, that's the way it is. And the Sfirot proceed in a very unique spirit form of progression that is kind of like a spiritual dialectic that is unfolding and can be the logic of that can be understood. It is the progression, describes the Ramak, and I'm really summarizing now, between the concept of essence and vessel which the Ramak then goes on to talk about in famous metaphoric terms as or, or meaning light, and kli, kli meaning vessel. These very, very axiomatic terms that you're going to find everywhere in Kabbalistic literature, or vakli, are not terms that are used by the Zohar and other literature. They are employed by the Ramak in Pardes Rimunim to create the metaphoric tools by which you can understand the progression of the Sfirot. Obviously, the vessel of any one level becomes the essence or the light of the next vessel. Ultimately, picking up from what we spoke about last week in the Tikkun Zohar, the Ramak now has a full picture of four worlds the world of emanation each world has its own is a domain that has its own ten sfirot and the world of emanation is the world that's closest to the divine it's not really there's no real separation between the divine and the world of emanation it emanates and then you've got the world of creation formation and action which are a threefold world that is kind of separated and in a creation which came out of nothing. And the Ramak talks about the fact that the divine, and this is really this is really the point at which it's hard to give over the flavor of the Ramak, but this is the most kind of noticeable feature of his approach in synthesizing everything. And remember I said at the beginning that it really is all about synthesis is that the divine pervades, or as we might say, and as you'll read in Kabbalistic English books, is imminent in, not imminent, but immanent, meaning it resides within everything. All of creation. Everything in creation is a manifestation of the divine. This comes 
this is a classic illustration of what later became known as panentheism, which is not quite the same as pantheism. The Ramak is not saying that nature is God. The Ramak is saying that the divine God, the presence of God, the reality of God, is present in everything, including nature. Nature is a mode of God. It's kind of closer to Spinoza in some ways than we realize, but it's not quite full-blown pantheism because the Ramak will also tell you that at the end of the day, we're talking about God being itlabish, meaning enclosed in the sphirot, in these dynamic attributes. The vessels are containers of divine flow that come into the world. They are attributes. They have basic fundamental natures. But they are vessels. And they are vessels for the essence of the divine that's coming into the world, which really at the end of the day is divine will. What's being revealed in the world is divine will, but it's being revealed to us through the spherot of which we are a part. The soul comes into the body, immanentizes in the body, which is a vessel in the same way that God is in the world. We already know that already from a famous Midrash, but the Ramak makes this tremendous parallel in a way that the Talmud probably could not because of the full identification that we have as humans with the Sephirotic structure. So we obviously, ultimately, are vessels. And then the Ramak has got a whole praxis, not so much in Parasrimonim, but he goes into Kavanot and meditations and mystical intentions in prayer and mystical experiences. The Ramak writes elsewhere on meditational methods and so on. But for the Ramak, primarily what Parasrimonim did is it solidified the theosophical picture that we have of God and the nature of what we're doing when we pray, when we perform mitzvot, how we're bringing down divine energy into the world. We are contemplating the reality of God in the world through understanding the Sfirot. And it's stunning. And it also has a whole side to practice. So... <laughs> If someone wanted to make an entire journey into the Ramak, they certainly could. And obviously, as I'm giving over the Ramak, and I've got to move on to the next book, I, I can, I can, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing myself thinking that there are things about this that I wanted to say that I won't. So we might uh, come back to it about the Paradisary Morning. But does everybody understand basically where it sits? 20 years later, 20 years later, the Ramak, who died at the age of 48, so not long before the end of his life, 20 years after he finished Paradisari Monim, the Ramak wrote another book which very, very few people study, very few people looked at. I was fortunate to be in a position where I was with a certain person who really wanted to study that book, and, and, I, and I ended up doing so but it is 
just mind-blowingly deep. There, the Ramak is not the systematizer of here. He is the deeper, deeper thinker about what, how, how to resolve some of the more difficult passages in Zohar and in Torah and what they spiritually mean. And of course, by the time the Ramak's writing that book, which is now coming towards, you know, it's the end of the 1560s, so already there are things happening in the world that are precipitating some of the great redemption movements that are about to emerge. But the Ramak died uh, young. And they said that, um, famously, they said that at his funeral, whoever sees a pillar of fire surrounding the, the coffin as it's being lowered into the grave will be the one who takes on the mantle of being the great Kabbalistic master of Tzfat. It was seen by someone there. And that someone had only arrived in Tzfat a few months earlier. This individual, who was born in Jerusalem but had grown up in Egypt, an individual called Yitzchak or Isaac Luria Ashkenazi, who also was a bit of an Ashkenazic Sephardic hybrid himself. But he grew up in Egypt where he was also a great student. Well, his teacher was Rav Betzalel Ashkenazi, the author of the Shittamaku Betzet. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that even before he came to Tzfat, the Ari had already written the commentary on Zvachim for Shittamaku Betzet. These are very interesting facts. But he came to Tzfat and obviously most people thought being a, an unknown person. I mean, the, the key fact is that the Ari had taken a copy of the Zohar, which by the 1560s had already been printed. And we assume that he took a printed copy, maybe he took his own manuscript copy, but he went to an island owned by his uncle in the Nile and sat there for different opinions. Some say seven years, some say 10 years, but whatever, however length of time, it was a long time. He would only come home on Shabbat. He'd spend the entire week on this island studying the Zohar. And after about 10 years, he decided to turn up in Sfat. And most people, of course, thought this unknown young man from Egypt was there to learn under the great masters. And what a shame for him that the Ramak passed away not long after he got here. You know, who's he going to learn from now? Well, we've still got some other great spiritual masters here in Sfat. But as it turns out, it soon became apparent that the Ari was not there to study or to learn. He was there to teach. And uh, we're not going to go into the big events now, but over the course of uh, the next short while, he gathered around him a group of uh, very, very unique individuals to whom he downloaded, because there is really no other word for it. He downloaded an entirely radical, innovative, and phenomenally, I mean, just unfathomably profound vision of God and then he died at the age of about 38. The primary receiver of those teachings, of the Lurianic teachings, and we refer to Rabbi Isaac Luria as the Ari, which stands for, and I know the word means lion, but it actually, the word, it's an acronym standing for the godly Rabbi Isaac. 
no one else really in Jewish history gets that, that title. He was an avatar of something else. It's a bit like Rabbi Shimon in the Zohar. He is literally revealing on his own authority. It is a, we, talk, we spoke about the fact that the full revelation of the Zohar, which happens in the 13th century, and then 300 years later, there is another unaccountable revelation. This is not material that the Ari is saying, oh, I got this from my teacher, he got it from his teacher. This is, I mean, everything the Ari says is consistent. It doesn't conflict with anything we already have, whether we're talking about halakha or Jewish mysticism itself and the various primary works and the various sense, because the Ari is somehow able to subsume everything that came before him in his vision. But he didn't write anything down. It was overwhelming even for the Ari. He said, if I tried to write, even when I speak, I can feel the dam wells breaking. To write it down would be basically impossible. That's why the only really thing we have written from him are the Zmirot that he wrote for Shabbat in Aramaic, which he composed for Shabbat. Bnei Hechala is one of them. And a commentary that he wrote on Sifra Ditzniuta, which may have been written either just before or not long after he arrived in Tzvat. The main receiver of his teachings was a man selected by him called Chaim Vital, who was a bit of an alchemist, a bit of a ooga-booga specialist, interested in Kabbalah, looking around. And he became the main student of the Ari. After the Ari died, Chaim Vital spent 50 years compiling various comprehensive versions of his notes that he took. It is apparent to scholars now that probably most of the Ari's teachings were given in classes that were responding to questions brought to him about the meaning of the Zohar. But Chaim Vital arranges the teachings in a way that also systematizes but really is a body of work that is describing what it is that the Ari wants you to see. And I'm going to talk about that for five minutes. I'm going to talk about that because it is contained in a book. The, the Ari is teaching the Vitalian, the Vitalian version of the Lurianic teachings come to us in two major forms. One of which was edited by his son called the Shmona Sharim, the Eight Gates, the Gate of Introductions, the Gate of Reincarnations, the Gate of the Mitzvot, the Gate of Mystical Intentions, the Gate of the Ma'amare Chazal, the Gate of the Ma'amare Rashbi, and so on. Eight Sharim. And then you have another entire version, oh, and you have another entire version of that that became edited in the 17th century in the 1600s during the revival of Jewish life in Jerusalem in the 1600s 
by figures like Yaakov Tzemach and Meir Poppers, and they produced this. Well, not this, because this was printed in the late 19th century, or is a facsimile of the late 19th century print. But this is the Etz Chaim. Obviously, literally, the tree of life. The Etz Chaim is the most dominantly influential text in Kabbalah since the Zohar. And the Etz Chaim contains the full picture of the Lurianic vision and what it's doing. It is nothing short of consciousness transforming when you follow what Chaim Vital is telling you. Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 no, 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 there are, there, <laughs> it's complex, there are areas where they agree with him, and there are areas where I wouldn't say conflict, but they have an entirely different picture. Sometimes there were books that were attributed to other students of the RE, that were, sorry, were attributed to Chaim Vital that were actually not by him. There are ideas that come from other students that feed in to later Kabbalah, including some of the texts that were very influential on Hasidut Chabad, came from texts by other students of the RE. The purest form of, of Vitalian Kabbalah is, of course, you won't find that in Europe because Europe became a big cholent of things. The purest Vitalian Kabbalah is the, uh, would probably be the students of the Rashash because all that Rav Shalom Sharabi would learn in the 18th century was Chaim Vital, that's all he was interested in learning and by that time they knew which books were and which books were. I will come back to this, it's an extremely interesting question. But I have 10 minutes to talk about Etz Chaim. Some of this is going to be familiar to you. Rabbi. Yitzhak Luria. The. Ari. And the book. Is Etz Chaim. <coughs> Everything you thought you knew about God, says the Ari, forget about it. God left the building before the universe was even created. The Ari takes Ein Sof. The Ramak wants us to get a little bit warm and cuddly with Ein Sof, the infinite. You know, and we see people today, I'm sensing infinite energy. And the Ari tells you, you're infinite. Gone. The first, not gone, yeah, gone. The first thing.
it's going to take a couple of minutes, but this really is the the key to understanding. I mean, it's the first thing that God does is contract away from creation in an act, a famous, famous theosophical and mystical dynamic process known as the Tsimtsum. The Tsimtsum. The Tsimtsum means the reduction or the contraction. On the other side of the Tsimtsum we don't know, but God creates a vacuum. God has withdrawn away. Here, here is Ein Sof. And in here is the halal, the vacuum. There's an idea, there's a classic example. There's a classic example, because many later Kabbalistic texts will tell you that it's not really a vacuum. That inside there, there's a thing called the Rashimul, which is an impression left by the infinite. And it's out of the Rishimu that the vessels of creation are made. But Chaim Vital never talks about a Rishimu. People don't realize this. Well, not there anyway. This is the halal, the vacuum. Then, having vacated the space in which creation is going to happen, God then re-enters the halal in a line. This light that comes into the halal has two configurations. One circular, because it follows the pattern of the space already created. And what is being formed here are sfirot. At the same time, At the same time, the light is entering in linear configuration, not circular, in linear configuration, and literally the way that this is described is almost identical to the 20th century or late 19th and 20th century's discovery that light is both wave and particle. This is precisely this. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that the RE would have had a meaningful conversation with Einstein. I'm just saying that it is completely wrong. When we talk about Kabbalists like the RE and we talk about the Etz Chaim, as I said last week, but now really acutely, we're in the 16th century, girls and boys. We are on the advent of an entirely new world. We're about to enter the modern period. We're in the Renaissance. The Enlightenment is just around the corner and Leibniz and Newton are going to read this. Doesn't mean, and what they're reading in the RE is closer to 21st century physics than just about anything else they're reading, except that they would not have realized that. The light comes in in a linear configuration of Sfirot and that linear configuration, of course, being a linear configuration of Sfirot, forms Dmut Adam, an Adamic form. And the Adamic form, of course, is three lines, 
and the spherot placed in a configuration that is Adamic, meaning human. But I'm not saying the word human meaning what we understand as human. We're talking Dmut Adam is the Adamic form of the divine energies as they enter into the, cosmos, into the space of creation. This, they come together to form an entity. <laughs> the reason I'm laughing is because I'm looking at you and I'm going, I'm in the next two, three minutes, I'm actually going to give over it Chaim. And I realize that I've already probably lost most of you, but I'm going to persist. They form a massive configuration called Adam Kadmon, primordial man or primordial human. Now the Sfirot are very, very bound up with the different letter combinations of the name of God. What the Ari is bringing back now is the realization that what is ultimately being revealed in the world is the name of God. The whole of creation is going to follow that pattern. He's not de-hierarchizing the importance of the Sfirot, but he is a little bit deprioritizing them. The name of God is the dominant processual engine here and the name of God can be spelt differently when you spell out the letters and therefore have different numeric values the famous numeric values of the name of God that Kabbalah deals with are 72 63 45 and 52 Ab, Sag, Ma and Bam all right so we've got Adam Kadmon who's kind of like the vessel into which the divine light is being poured. But the Sfirot of the lower half of Adam Kadmon cannot handle the light that starts streaming into the cosmos from the infinite and it smashes. The seven lower Sfirot smash. That, says the Ari, is Umalchin Kadmain Metu Vizio that we learned in the Sefer Yetzirah. That is the whole story of the primordial kings. That's the mystical secret of the primordial kings. Ele Malche Edom Lifne Malach Melech Livne Israel from chapter 36, I believe, of Sefer Bereshit. Then a new light, a new light of Ma, a new light of 45 comes out and begins to reconstruct the broken Sfirot, the Sfirot break in an event known as the Shvira. In fact, the Shvirat Ha Kelim, the smashing of the vessels. And then the whole, I mean, you have to understand, Tzimtzum is the contraction, infinite withdrawal into itself to create a space for creation is one of the most, I mean, not just the well-known, but profoundly influential ideas in Lurianic Kabbalah. And yet what most people don't realize that in the whole of Etz Chaim, and this is what Etz Chaim looks like when you open it up, it's not exactly 
sparse on the words, the whole of Etz Chaim, and I would say that the discussion on Simtum, the famous discussion on Simtum, occupies maybe the first one and a half to two pages. The bulk of Etz Chaim is concerned with the process of rectifying the world through the new set of configurations that emerge from the Svirat called Partsufim. Partsufim are configurated Svirat. They would have come, they would have come to the Ari and they would have said, what's the difference between Chokhmah and Abba? What's the difference between Bina and Ima? What's the difference between Yaakov and Israel? And why is it sometimes called Tiferet? And why is it sometimes called Ben? And why is it sometimes called Yaakov? And why is it sometimes called the Amuda Deim Tsaita? And why is this? And why is this? And all of these different terms in the Zohar have explicit meanings for the Ari, but these Paratsufima configurations by which the divine light can be contained in the construction of a reality that can hold the divine. And that process of repair, of course, is called tikkun. The idea of tikkun olam, which became so, has become so famous in Jewish thought and Jewish philosophy in the last hundred years or so, really derives its origin from the Ari, because as the Ari tells you, I mean, a, the soul for the Ari, I mean, don't forget, the four worlds for the Ari are really manifestations of the name of God. Yes, there is a Sephirotic designation, you know, Asiya is Malchut, and Yitzirah is Tiferet, and Briya is Bina, and Atzilut is Chokhmah, but for the Ari, these are much clearer as as manifestations of the name of God, of yud Hey vav Hey, Because as we see, the Ari has a configuration of five levels to the cosmos. Because there's Atsiyah, Yitzirah, Briah, Atsilut, and Adam Kadmon. The soul Okay. Eventually, eventually, the world of emanation emerges with all its configurations. And the ultimate aim is to balance the male and female, which is Zer and Pin and Nukva, of the world of Atzilut, which is Kudshabrichu and Shechinta, the Holy Blessed One and the Shechina, to align them in the world of emanation so that they can unite in coupling and give birth to souls. Souls then descend into the worlds, the three lower worlds of creation, formation, and action. And the soul for the Ari, you're listening carefully, Rabbi Khan, the soul for the Ari, how many levels to the soul did we say were in the Zohar last week? Three. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama. And for the Ari, there are five. The soul has five levels because the soul reflects the entire cosmos. And we know that. 
the soul, the human. You are not your body. You are, of course, your soul. You are, of course, your essential spiritual essence. Your soul comprises a reflection of the entire cosmos, a part of all the cosmos, because it is the job of the human being to bring it all together. Possibly one of the most amazing turning points in the whole of Kabbalistic and Jewish thought is in the Etz Chaim, and you'll find it, and I'm going to quote it to you because I've got to finish now, I'm going to find it, I'm going to tell you what it says. In Sha'ar HaTzelem, which is gate 26 of Etz Chaim, I've got to tell you that if you're opening Etz Chaim and you get to gate 26, you're going to be interested in what it says. 26 is a very significant number. And he tells you there in chapter 1 of gate 26, and he says explicitly and clearly. And I'm going to say this sentence, and you're going to go, oh yeah, yeah I've heard that before. That's, I, I, my rabbi tells me that every week in his sermon, I know that. But if you understand the location of the Ari saying this in Etzchayim, souls do not come into this world for themselves. They come to fix the world and repair the cosmos. Human souls, and particularly Jewish souls, do not come into the world to gain salvation or to mystically stare at the wall and have warm, fuzzy embraces with the infinite. They come into this world to fix the universe. The impetus of Tikkun is everywhere in the Ari. And of course, for the Ari, everything is everything. So every part of the journey of the Jewish people, every member of the I mean, the, the Ari has an enormous theory of reincarnation as well, about how all souls are emerging from the two great streams that come out of Adam Kadmon, the souls of Cain and the souls of Abel, the souls of Cain and the souls of Hevel. This theory of transmigration in the Ari is obviously an entirely separate subject. What I've looked at tonight is Etz Chaim, and what I wanted to show is the, which I didn't really, I only got as far as Adam Kadmon's lower half collapsing, we couldn't even encapsulate the Tikkun, but the entire picture contained in 50 gates over seven chambers. And then of course, the sixth chamber is the rebuilding of Nukva, of the whole feminine in the world. It's not just the divine concept of the divine that is broken. There is a deep fracture, not only between humanity and God, but within humanity and self, between genders. There's no question that the major thrust, the Ari was telling you, we are about to go into a time of Aliyata Nukva. We're about to go into a time of the rise of the feminine. It's no coincidence that I also call the 16th century the century of the Jewish woman. But the Ari leads directly into the modern world. The Ari said we are entering now into this advent of the modern world. And therefore, there is an immense praxis that comes out of it, how you adopt the huge... I mean, every single level represents every other, so the entire system is fractal. I haven't given it over the way I wanted to tonight. I had a number of points in my head I wanted to be able to transmit to you about this. 
Unfortunately, the Etz Chaim has not been translated. Uh, the first part of it has, but the bulk of it remains untranslated. Uh, the Pardes, I believe, has been translated. I don't have, I don't have it, but uh, there are, there's quite a lot of material on the Ramak if you want to read it. Uh, the Ramak, of course, is still studied. There's a, um, a famous uh, story about Chaim Vital uh, many, many years after he was in Tzvat with the Arim, decades later. He started saying, oh, I might go back and have a look at what the Ramak was saying. So he goes back to Pardesri Monim, and after a few days of learning Pardesri Monim, the Ramak himself, and Chaim Vital records it, the Ramak comes to him in a dream and says, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> Up here, even I'm learning the Ari. <laughs> so it's a famous story, whether or not it's true or legendary, but it gives an idea of the fact that the Ramak is one of the holiest Kabbalists that we have. And if the Ari hadn't turned up, we'd probably all be Cordoveran Kabbalists. But the Ari did turn up and the Ari shifted the vision forever. The implications of the processes of Tzimtzum, Shvira, Tikkun, the way that the Ari is able to explain every single facet of Jewish life, of Jewish history, of Torah, of Halakha, of everything, of every book that's ever been written and will be written. Everything is complete, has a place in the system of the Ari. Since the Ari, we have all really existed in a post-Lurianic universe as far as not only Kabbalah but Jewish thought generally because what's going to happen in the 17th century and the 18th century and the rise of all the great movements in Judaism are going to be drawing in some way from the wellsprings of Tzfat and particularly the wellspring of the Ari who brings an entirely different uh, revelatory character to uh, Jewish thought. Uh, so, are there any questions on that? Because that is as far as I'm going to take it tonight. Can I just clarify, what, how is the progression from Zohar to, like, obviously, whatever Ari was saying, he goes from Zohar, or something else? You know, the Ari, the Ari bases everything he says on his reading of the Zohar. Yes, I'm agreeing with you on that. So, how, so we, no one else could understand it? No, 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 no. I mean, no, no. People are, people are going around going, you know, what does this mean? What does this mean? And then suddenly you come across someone who says, I'll tell you what it means. And then six hours later, your mind is like, and he's, and he's shown you, he's opened, he's used a passage of Zohar to open the doorway on an entire spiritual universe um, that is still, for the last 450 years, the Jewish world, the mystics really are uh, grappling with and saturated with. It is, uh, it's immense. And it, yes? You've got Ein um, which is infinite outside, and you've got Sinsum, which is the universe which is created, which is also infinite. How do you get infinite inside infinite? How does that... So, so what, 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 what's the second infinite? The infinite Sinsum, where um, yeah. it's drawn to the, to the creation of the universe. Yes. So you've got an infinite... He, yeah, uh, here's infinite. Right? Inside the infinite, there's a space where the infinite powers have been suspended. So it's not an infinite? No. Inside here is limitation. Otherwise, God's presence couldn't be made known to other and it couldn't be contained. Yeah? The Ramak writes even that God is like a living organism that is self-revealing out of the depths of itself, as Shalom put it. But in the Ari, 
The act of Tzimtzum is fundamentally an act of Din. It's fundamentally an act of judgment of limitation. It's an act of limitation. Inside this area, it is capable of limitation. So when divine light comes from the infinite into the vacuum space where limitation exists, it immediately must assume a vessel of limitation, which is what the Sfirot provide. The Sfirot for the Ramak and for the Ari, and this is extremely interesting, I'll end on this point, the Sfirot are not dissimilar to Newton's discovery of what happens with the refraction of light through a prism. So divine light, when it enters into a domain, refracts into the Sfirot, the way that light refracts into its spectrum through a prism. So as soon as the light comes in to the Halal, it assumes Sephirotic um, configurations, but at first circular and linear at the same. The circular really is nature, and the linear is life, or spirit, spirit, sorry, sorry. As, the, as, as Chaim Vital tells you. Now, one of the other students of Chaim Vital, the most famous, there are a number of students, the, the most famous of the other ones is, of course, Yisrael Sarug. And Yisrael Sarug's famous book called Limudar Tzilut, Studies in Emanation, which really became the first Lurianic text to get to Europe, and that's why it was so influential on subsequent literature. He doesn't start with the Tzimtzum. He starts with the infinite. And the infinite has a thought of creation. That thought, I'm going to tell you that this is the opening of one of the most incredible and famous Kabbalistic texts. You're not going to believe me. But Yisrael Sarug tells you that the thought of creation causes the divine to laugh. That laughter creates cosmic vibrations within infinity that end up in the structure of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet which are going to be the building blocks of a garment that God is going to wrap in called the Malbush. And only after he has wrapped himself in the Malbush in the space that Sarug calls the Tehiru is the Malbush folded over and then you can start the Tzimtzum and you have a huge number of processes that happen before you eventually get to the point where he meets up with Vital and the lower part of Adam Kadmon collapses. Although, once again, even there, there are differences. For Sarug, Malchut does not break, it's a whole thing. So there are differences. So what exactly God is doing just prior to the Tzimtzum, we're not sure. But we understand from classical Kabbalistic sources that there is, at some level within the infinite, there is a, a machsha, Allah machshava. it arises in thought. God wants a relationship with other. The one thing that we have in common with God is our uniqueness and our individuality. That's basically the essential expression of our soul. We share organic characteristics with much of the rest of creation, but we have a soul that is divine and, as the Ramak would say, immanentized in a body. So we share that level of yichida, that level of uniqueness with God. God is a genuine subject. God is an I, an individual. But I wants a relationship with other. 
So it's not an easy thing to create for an infinite, even for an infinite God to create a finite universe and put himself in it. I mean, I imagine that it's probably easy for God. But for us to understand that in terms of what we are doing here in this world and how we can fix the cosmos ultimately at the end of the day to make it a place for the Shekhinah. The word Shekhinah means divine presence. If we, the, if we do not make the world a place where God can reside, God won't reside here. And in fact, right now, God is not residing here in a revealed way. God is present, but for the most part concealed. Until humanity reaches that point of consciousness where we see the divine. Alright guys, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you.